Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Charles II. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! Welcome to Rats Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. This week we're at Charles. We are, we're back with the monarchy. Um, but before we get on to Charles II, we should probably say we've had an awful lot of comments on uh, Twitter, at Rex Factor Pod and um, Facebook page. Yeah, that's been great fun. Uh, Cromwell has um, attracted debate. We've uh, had a few people who are very much anti-Cromwell and agreed with our decision. Uh, Laura Belf on Facebook says she was mightily relieved about the decision. Carol Jeffords and uh, Murray Irvine on Twitter also agreed he didn't deserve it. We had some who were a bit more in the middle, yeah. a bit more balanced. Uh, Yunus Nashit, apologies for the pronunciation, that's probably wrong, suggested that he should have won the regicide factor. Oh, uh, yeah, that was good. But not uh, the Rex factor. David Nola on Twitter sort of thought, you know, the technicality verdict, probably mm. what he was expecting. And uh, also on Twitter, Madame Mertui uh, said he was quite like Caesar in the sense that he was this sort of... Republican figure that ended up being proto-monarchy but turned the monarchy down mm. quite publicly, but he should have won the dictator factor, yep. she suggested. However, a lot of people, probably the majority we have to say, particularly on Facebook, were vehement in their displeasure. They love him. Uh, we didn't give him. Matthew Constable said it was a travesty of justice. If we include an episode on him, then he should be uh, eligible to win it. Henry VII didn't get blamed for killing the king, nor did Edward I get blamed for having a rubbish son. <coughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, Dean Irwin said that regardless of what Cromer wanted or wanted to be, he had the powers of a king. Yeah. Uh, which we said because he wasn't, it didn't count. Katie Micklethwaite said that, thought that he would get it. Uh, she's hoping to hear a little less of Edward I. Well, he's been mentioned twice now, so um, <laughs> that's that out of the way. Uh, Dean Owen also, I think, suggested that we could try and mention him every single episode. And, and he's it. happy to, because he's got two mentions. <laughs> and uh, David Krauser, who does the History of England podcast, uh, thought the verdict was a cop-out and the scoring system supported him getting the Rex Factor. Should we not explain why we did him in the first place and why he's therefore not eligible? It's essentially, Rex Factor, a sort of biographical podcast. So, with two exceptions, one of which being the first episode, we've always reviewed a person. And in fact, even what happened to Henry VIII, it was one person. Technically, it might have made more sense to either have just completely skipped 20 years and gone on straight to Charles, or to have done a The Commonwealth of England episode and not reviewed anyone. But... We're largely biographical, and I think people were interested and wanted to know about Cromwell. Yeah. However, it doesn't escape the fact that for much of the period he wasn't technically really in charge, and at the end of the day he was asked, do you want to be king? And he said, no. But I, don't th- I think everyone's going to be... We're I don't think that's going to turn anyone around, yeah. but I think that's why. In terms mm. of the Henry VII not blamed for killing the king, he, we didn't hold that against him. We gave him a good scandal score. Yeah. And having a rubbish son, the problem for Cromwell was that it wasn't that he was part of a really long dynasty of kings and your job is to have a son and then he takes it on from there. Cromwell was setting up an entirely new way of governing and he failed to do to do that in such a way that it would survive beyond him. It was built purely on the foundations of him holding it together, mm, yeah. and that is a failure. So the fact that he set up an entirely new system of government that only lasted a few years and then was replaced straight afterwards was his failure to create something stronger. But, yeah, personality cult or something. Mm. It's, um, 
but thanks very much for all the comments. And thanks all the, very um, much. Keep them coming. Yeah, they're, they're really they're really great, and we'll keep on top of that. And thanks to Chad. He's been active on Facebook. Lots of comments yes, from Chad, yeah. and thanks to everyone who's been promoting us, telling their friends about it. Anyway, on with uh, Charles II. Born in 1630, son of Charles I and Henrietta Maria. Becomes king in 1660, uh, so he's about 30 years old. We're not going to count him as being king from the point at which Charles I was executed. No, yeah. Uh, and his relationship to Elizabeth II, he's the first cousin nine times removed. <laughs> right. In terms of his appearance, he was a very tall man. He was about six foot two. Yeah. A uh, dark complexion, also very dark hair. Uh, a roundhead proclamation um, when he was on the run, what he looked like. He said, take notice of Charles Stewart to be a tall man above two yards high, his hair a deep brown near to black. Yeah, I suppose they didn't, yeah, needed a wanted post or something, didn't mm. they? And Sir Samuel uh, Tuke in 1660 said that his face is rather grave than severe, which is very much softened whensoever he speaks. His complexion is somewhat dark, but much enlightened by his eyes, which are quick and sparkling. His hair, which he hath in great plenty, is of a shining black, not frizzled, but so naturally curling into great rings that it is a very comely ornament. This is why I thought he had a wig. Well, I think he does ultimately take up a periwig. Uh-huh. It comes the fashion. When he oh, starts going grey, I think. Oh, OK. Transfers okay. to a wig. Starts off, of course, he's um, Prince of Wales. He's the man who's going to take over from his father as the next king. But then we have the Civil War. During the Civil War, when he was you know, just a boy, he was present at the Battle of Edge Hill. Which one was that? That was sort of the first battle right at the start, where they sort of faced each other off and mm-hmm. they weren't quite won. Accompanied Charles I on his successful Cornish campaign in 1644. And in 1645, so he's, you know, he's just um, 15 at that point, he was made nominal commander of the Western Forces, the HQ in Bristol. Really? Not actually, really. God, I can barely tie my shoe 1646, he went into exile, first in the Scillies and Jersey and then to Paris. 1648, took control of uh, some of the warships, hoping to invade England, rescue his father, but to no avail. And of course, 1649, Charles I was executed. Yeah, sad day. To try and get um, himself back into England and become King of England, his rightful rightful throne, as he would have thought, he linked up with the Scottish Covenant. So these were the the Presbyterian Mm. leaders in Scotland. In exchange for accepting... Uh, Presbyterianism as the main religion he was made king of Scotland um, but he didn't really care for the religion and he certainly didn't care for the people so he he wasn't really able to be ruling but he's got some people that most support him. Is this after the Scots have invaded England again? No this is in advance of that. Okay. This is a prelude. So 1650 the Battle of Dunbar Charles was kept at bay so he wasn't allowed to be involved mm. with the army. Covenant leaders also purged their army of all the religious malignants Lots of officers and soldiers sent out, and they had a disastrous defeat to Cromwell. Mm. So this gave a bit more ammunition to Charles. So he was then crowned at Scone. Uh, he raised a, a second army, and 1651 marched all the way down to Worcester with this army. Oh, this was that incursion, right? This was that incursion. Okay. Fought against Cromwell, but of course, uh, again, completely defeated, and was forced to go off into exile. Mm. And this exile is, we say this almost every week, but this really should be a film. Because it's an incredible story. Charles is escaping. Um, After losing the Battle of Worcester, he was sort of told to flee by his allies. He wanted to sort of go down fighting. Like, no, 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 you could just get out, get out. Decided it was probably safe for him to travel alone rather than big posse of people. So it is sort of one of his henchmen, Lord Wilmot, who was kind of going ahead and working out the route. Right. Where he was going to go. Initially, he was trying to head off to Wales. Just the two of them? Um, well, just the, the well, he wasn't even with Wilmot. So Wilmot's usually ahead oh, right. and sort of laying the ground. So Charles would be linking up with different people, loyalist, yeah. ordinary people that would have to house him and help him get from one place to another. Right. So initially, he ended up in Shropshire at Boscobel, mm. and uh, he was nearly captured by Roundhead troops. So he literally had to climb a tree and I've hide heard this up story, it. Yeah. So there's a point where apparently he spent the whole day up at the top of this tree hiding. And there's yeah. one stage where the troops were literally right below. The tree's still up, there. The original tree isn't still oh. there. Royal Oak, which yeah. is what it was. That's not still there. But the son of Royal Oak, right. which is what it's called, that is still there. That's about 200, 300 years old. Yeah. And the saplings from the original can be bought from Boscobel House. Yeah. So you can yeah. actually buy a sapling from the tree that saved his is life. Is that a bit like the one true cross? Little well, maybe. <laughs> Got an acorn here. And mm. apparently it's the third most common pub name in England, Royal Oak. 
Is that where that's from? That's where it's from. Yeah, right. Okay, little Rex fact. But so Charles is a fugitive in his own country. As we said, there was that government proclamation circulated with a description of him and a thousand pound reward. Capture for him or anyone who was caught helping him would have resulted in execution. Mm. So it's very dangerous. Um, he tries to get to Wales to cross the Severn. He was unable to do so, so he heads back to Stratford upon Avon, and then he goes south to Sirencester again to try and look for a ship. To God, he's going that's quite a distance. That way, apparently he had stopped off for some sightseeing at Stonehenge. <laughs> and, uh, That's ridiculous. Disproved the adage that you could not count the stones twice and come to the same total. Apparently he did. Yeah, it's pretty easy, isn't it? Well, no, well, apparently if you try and count them all and then do it again, you'll come to a different number. Mm. But he didn't. <laughs> right, OK. Um, so eventually he made it down to Brighton, boarded a merchant ship at Shoreham, which took him to France. So six weeks after the Battle of Worcester, he made it out. Right. For this an incredible period, he dresses up in disguise, so his face and hands stained with walnut juice, his hair was cut, dressed up as a woodcutter, also as a servant. A bit difficult to obscure him, because he's so tall and yeah. he's got very distinctive... And he's covered in berry juice to be... This, <laughs> actually, this would make a great film, but an even better Monty Python film, <laughs> it's so farcical. <laughs> It'd be like faking it. Honestly, I'm a woodcutter. And his friend, his Lord Wilmot, apparently refused to wear a disguise. Yeah. He wouldn't lower himself to yeah. do that, so he just trot out in front and claimed to be hunting if anyone stopped him. Yeah. Which is quite a good diversion uh, in many ways. Charles loved the acting and the dressing up and playing characters. He <laughs> He's really, just having fun. He Sightseeing at Stonehenge. Really got into it. Character. Sometimes appeared as a servant, sometimes as a newlywed husband. And he's very clever in how he deals with it. So he once he deflected attention at one house by asking a servant what the king looked like. Because obviously everyone's looking oh, for clever. him. So the servant says, oh, at least three th- fingers taller than you. Right. And he's going... <laughs> <laughs> I bet he couldn't help but go... <laughs> <laughs> this is one great incident where he's sharing a horse with uh, this woman called Jane Lane. So you've got, you know, Charles and this woman on the horse together. But the, the horse lost its shoe, so they had to get it replaced. So Charles, acting as a servant, went to the shoesmith to get it repaired. And um, apparently he asked for news of Charles Stewart. So Charles asked the man for mm. news of himself, in effect. And he recollected later, I told him that if that rogue, i.e. himself, were taken, he deserved to be hanged more than all the rest for bringing in the Scots. Upon which he said, I spoke like an honest man, and so we parted. <laughs> Brilliant. So he's having a great time with yeah. it. Impact of this, of course, he's one of the only kings who genuinely experiences the ordinary life of his subjects. Yeah. Because he's going from place to place, he's hiding in priest holes that Catholics yeah, are helping yeah. him. He actually sees what it's like being... There, as a normal person. So he has no airs or graces later in life. But also, apparently, he told anecdotes of it endlessly after he became king. So he tells Pete several times. Apparently, he used to bore people that always (laughs) heard it. Shoe lost his horse. I gave him one of my pretend ones. (laughs) (laughs) But he made... The important thing, of course, is he does escape and gets Mm. to France. So he's still at large. Lives in France, later in the Netherlands, largely impoverished and not having much fun because Cromwell wins respect of European leaders... And very bleak prospects for Charles in exile of ever returning. Even though he's still <coughs> Scottish king at this point? Even though he's still technically Scottish mm. king, he's really not got much hope, because yeah. Cromwell then, of course, is ruling in Scotland as well. Mm. However, Oliver Cromwell dies in 1658, and his son Richard Cromwell takes over as protector, but he doesn't have his father's confidence or his power base. May 1659, he is removed from his position as Lord Protector mm. and gets nicknamed Tumbledown Dick. Right. And there's then lots of tension in the country, fear that they're about to go into another civil war because there's no obvious leader in the army or in parliament. There's no one that can fill the void that Cromwell left. Generals Fleetwood and Lambert established a committee of safety, um, but there's still lots of diversions. Royalists gained control of Cheshire for a while, but then Lambert took it back. So then the key figure was a man, General Monk. Mm -hmm. He was head of the English forces in Scotland and they weren't quite sure what he was going to do and how he was going to react to all of this. Lambert was sent to negotiate or force him to come to terms, but his troops deserted him and Monk decided march south into London. No one knew what he was going to do when he got there, what side his bread was going to be buttered on, but he decided, with the cooperation of Sir Thomas Fairfax, who came out yeah. of retirement briefly, restoring the monarchy. Oh, right, OK, so you set me up to think that he was coming down to be king. Yeah, I know, no, he decides... Right. Okay. Uh, Royal order is what the country needs. So, recalls the rump parliament, mm-hmm. including all those people that were purged, um, if we recall, before the yeah, execution of uh, 
Charles. Negotiations are entered into and um, facilitated by Charles's chief minister in exile, who's Edward Hyde, later becomes Earl of Clarendon. They start talks. Charles issues a thing called the Declaration of Braden in 1660, where he pledges pardon for basically everybody apart from those that signed the death warrant of his father. And then, sure enough, it's decided. Charles is coming back. And this is all because Monk is the most powerful person in the country at the moment. He's taken control and brought back a parliament which is basically Mm pro-restoration. So, Parliament sends a fleet to bring Charles back, along with his brother James, Duke of York, and also some Spaniels. Uh, Lovely. Um, Sorry, I thought, why would the Rump Parliament be supportive of restoring the monarchy? Because they're Rump, because they were decimated by... Well, no, the Rump Parliament... And all the people that were purged that couldn't join it. Because remember, the purge was where you had the long parliament. Mm-hmm. And then Colonel Pride stood on the steps and stopped all the opponents yeah. coming in. And what was left was the rump. Yeah. So we have those that were in the rump yeah. that were left and the people that were excluded. So, so it's everyone. And broadly, everyone's pro bringing the monarchy back because they're worried of anarchy. A majority of... Yeah. yeah. They, uh, most people didn't want to execute Charles I. It was a minority that mm-hmm. made okay. that happen. Right, so it's it's have a sort of tamed king uh, versus the fear of another civil war. Yeah, exactly. Fair enough. So Charles has come back with his brother and with his spaniels. Streets are thronging with people from, all the way from Canterbury to London. He processes. He gets to London on his thirtieth birthday. Bells ringing, uh, trumpets blasting, fountains running with wine. It's sort of you know proper mm. medieval celebration. Yeah. yeah. Charles, though, he's got his, uh, his feet very much on the ground. He's developed a. Pretty strong dose of cynicism. Yeah, I think he would. <laughs> after Civil War and all his years. So he, uh, he commented that so many people assured him that they had longed for his return. It must have been his own fault that he'd stayed away for so long. Ah, uh, <laughs> Met with nervous <laughs> laughter all around, no doubt. <laughs> um, then there was... A lot of people wanted real vengeance against the Republicans and yeah. all them. But there isn't a lot of that. Only 12 regicides, either the people that signed the death warrant of those alive, are executed... Four, of course, are dug up posthumously. Cromwell, the most famous of them. And and beheaded. And beheaded. Posthumously. Yeah. Wow. And many Commonwealth officials, though, retain their original position in lands. Charles urges and succeeds with an act of indemnity and oblivion, which basically prevents widespread reprisals. Mm. And probably the most famous person that was probably saved by this act was the poet John Milton. Oh, really? Who had been um, a minister under the Commonwealth and was very pro. Mm. And okay. So it's not too much, you know, yeah. blood lining the streets. This is what we've learned from Rex though. Those who take retribution normally end up to a sticky end. Forgive and forget. Mm. So the 1660s, it's the Restoration. Right. Puritan bans on things like theatre and Christmas are lifted, so we see a real blossoming of sort of cultural outpouring. Yeah. Exciting, fun times. Charles's own court is renowned for its debauchery. He's the king who brought back partying. There's the reference. In 1665, there's some difficulties. We have the Great Plague. Um, it's not actually that big, but it's the last wave of the Black Death pandemic. Yeah, so it's it's not the, the one from 300 years earlier. Is it same it's the last wave, um, of wave of that. Um, killed about 100,000 people in London. Most, mostly poor people, because all the rich people just... Scarpa yeah. after the country um, also about 40,000 dogs and 80,000 cats they rounded up all the strays and killed them fearing that they spread the disease mm. in reality they probably would have helped kill the rats <laughs> yeah but they weren't to know and then of course a year later 1666 we have the great fire of London that's the biggie in his reign isn't it oh very much biggie starts uh, in a bakery on Pudding Lane but spread rapidly because of the tightly packed wooden buildings that made the medieval streets of London Destroyed about 13,000 buildings, including 87 churches, most famously St Paul's, mm. which was later rebuilt, but only nine fatalities. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? That, can... that are recorded. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's such a strange period of history that I, I consider the Great Fire of London and Pepys and all that, sitting and burying his cheese under his house. Yeah. Um, it's a very different period to Cromwell. But, I mean, clearly, it's it just there's so much change going on in these yeah. next hundred years. It's bizarre. Um. Christopher Wren and Robert Hooke organised rebuilding of London, which happened very quickly, really, in sort of, you know, sort of 10, 20 years, that they really get mm. it back as a flourishing city, because it could have been fierce, you know, that they would have lost it. Yeah. But get it back on track. In religious matters, Charles wants toleration, but the Cavalier Parliament, the um, sort of people that come in and are pro-royalists, are defiantly Anglican. 
Right. None is Puritanism, none is Catholicism. They want the restoring of order to include restoring the Church of England as primary. A thing called the Clarendon Code comes in, which is a series of acts enforcing the Anglican supremacy and opposing religious dissenters, particularly Catholics. Named after his minister, who was Edward Hyde, the Earl of Clarendon, although he didn't really support it for some reason, his name right, okay. gets attached to it. But there's a particular sensitivity around Catholicism. But Charles wants toleration, his parliament doesn't. So we've got a bit of tension brewing in religious matters. So he's still got, he's still got considerable power here? Very much so. It's kind of going back to 1641, Charles I, really. I suppose It's so a big rewind. They haven't re-established a new constitutional settlement. It's just... Yeah, they wanted a strong as man we back were. in charge. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But as we see, that will cause tensions as it goes along. In foreign policy, he marries a woman, Catherine of Braganza, who's a Portuguese princess in 1662. She brings territories of Tangiers, um, which proved to be a bit of a pain. Uh, and Morocco? Bo- mm. Wow. And Bombay, which of course is crucial for the development of how the British Empire. How has she got... Portuguese, you know, they've got oh, their Portuguese, sorry, I missed that bit. Yep, yep. Uh, there's the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Remember Cromwell and uh, yeah. Admiral Blake done very well. Um, came out with New Amsterdam, which they renamed New York yeah. after James, mm. Duke of York, but uh, suffered a humiliating defeat largely, with the f- royal fleet being scuttled at Medway. So the Dutch actually sailed all the way up. The That's Thames. the one I was thinking of before. Mm. Yeah, you've got the sink ports now to defend them. Yeah. Mm. Um, most importantly, though, was the rise of France as the power in Europe. And this is when Louis XIV comes onto the stage, the, um, the Sun King, yes. as he's properly known. Comes into the personal rule at 23 in 1661, and he makes France an industrial, military, cultural powerhouse. Genuine superpower. Right, so we've gone from Spain being the dominant force. Now we're looking at the now French. France. Hmm. We're in the wings. We're in the wings. In government, um, for much of the 1660s, it was dominated by Hyde, Clarendon, um, but he became a scapegoat for the failure of the Dutch War. And also, Charles was getting a bit fed up with him because he was still talking to him as if he was the teenager in exile. Yeah. He was getting a bit fed up with him. So he was made a scapegoat, sent into exile, and he was replaced by a thing called the Cabal Ministry, which was um, the Earls of Clifford, Arlington, Buckingham, Ashley and Lauderdale, C-A-B-A-L. Oh, right, yeah. Um, five of his favourites who wield a great power, 1668 to 74. So we've got lots of things going on there, but 1670, some of those tensions that we've sort of mentioned in religion, foreign policy, really come to the surface. In foreign policy, the Dutch war went very badly. England didn't get anything particularly good out of it. And also in 1670, Charles signed a treaty of Dover with Louis XIV, which people are a bit suspicious about because France is Catholic and it's the powerful country. Nothing to do with Dover. We've lost Dover. Dover. Sorry. Thinking of Calais. We've yeah. still got Dover. We still, still got Dover, do. Thank God. Calais was Mary, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, OK, right, with you. Um, in secret, because um, there are two treaties of Dover, one is secret clauses, and then there's another one which is kind of secret, but more people see it. The very secret one, he pledges to restore England to Catholicism in return for money and French military aid, should he require it. Wow. Military aid? For what? Fighting the Dutch? Well, no. In, in England, if he needs it. Right. But he'd only need it if he brought Catholicism. Oh, well, yes. It could cause a problem. <laughs> um, and other than that, there's an agreement that they'll go to war together against the Dutch because right. France wants to yeah. increase their territorial expansion. So people don't know about it, but there are rumours of it. So mm. there's growing tensions there. And Parliament see France, Catholic France, as the real enemy. So they don't like the fact that Charles is yeah. quite pro-French. Then there is the Third Anglo-Dutch War following on from this. So France invade in 1672. Charles decides he's going to join in, declares a declaration of indulgence where he repeals the Clarendon Code, i.e. all the things saying Anglicanism is primary, you can't be Catholic, etc. He says, no, no, everyone's fine. Do what you want. Which people aren't too happy about. Held a lot of suspicion. And the Dutch, again, prove themselves worthy to the challenge. They hold out against the French thanks to uh, Charles's nephew, William, Prince of Orange. Right. Who will come into our story yeah. uh, later on, of course. So there's opposition to the Dutch war, there's suspicions about the Dover Treaty. Charles forced to sign another peace with the Dutch, which, again, England don't mm. do particularly well out of. And he's forced to back down on his religious repeal. So 1673, we have the Test Act. 
So this is where um, any Catholics aren't... If you're Catholic, you can't hold public office of any kind. Because, I mean, this is a period of huge um, anti-Catholic feeling, and in, in the, the Great Fire itself was blamed on Catholics. There was, a, you know, there was a lot of fear about that being a Catholic plot. And it's inscribed along the bottom that it's... It was. They've um, scrubbed it out now. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. the monument in yeah. London did have a... A thing saying, oh, Catholics. Yeah, yeah you toads. <laughs> and, of course, the thing is that not only is Charles quite pro-Louis Fourteenth, who's Catholic, but Catherine of Baganza, his wife, is Catholic... His brother, James, Duke of York, from 1668, is publicly Catholic. Right. Comes out as a Catholic. And Charles and Catherine have failed to produce an heir, and she suffered numerous miscarriages, so it's now established that probably they're never going to. Which means that the next in line is his publicly Catholic brother, James, yeah. Duke of York. And public would assume that he's actually secretly Catholic as well, I presume. Well, yes, but regardless of what yeah, Charles thinks in... Yeah. in private, in public, when Charles dies at the moment, it's going to be a Catholic taking the throne. Yeah, so hence attention. So that's why you have the Test Acts, but it doesn't exclude James from the throne. Mm. However, we then come along to the exclusion crisis. 1678, there's a thing called the Popish Plot. A man called Titus Oates, who Ooh, is yeah. no, yeah. Uh, yeah. described by David Starkey as being lame, stunted, homosexual and extraordinarily ugly. <laughs> uh, he invented... Uh, a Catholic conspiracy to murder Charles and restore England to Catholicism. It's completely made up. Charles saw straight through him, not least because he was describing some of the people involved, and Charles said, oh, what does he look like? And he got it completely wrong. But nevertheless, Parliament and the country, or London, take it very seriously. And particularly after a man called Judge Godfrey, who heard his deposition, was found murdered. There's hysteria. People say, oh, it was Catholics, the plot's true, they're going to be killing everyone, they're going to kill Charles, it's going to be chaos. Widespread public hysteria. Um, soldiers, regiments patrolling the streets at night, publicly disarming Catholics. About 30 innocent people accused by Oates were executed. Really? So why well, was this fellow dead in the first place? The, the first guy who... The bishop, was it bishop? God, a uh, judge. Yeah, judge. Uh, well, they don't know, it's unsolved. Okay. Don't know who killed well, him. Probably Oates. Well, yes, maybe. And this leads to increasing tensions with James and his Catholic status. One of the people from the Cabal, um, Ashley, who's now um, Earl of Shaftesbury, he increasingly fell out with Charles, and with, particularly with James, opposed um, Catholics, and he became a sort of chief oppositional leader in Parliament. And he was promoting the cause of Charles's eldest illegitimate and defiantly Protestant son, the Duke of Monmouth, because Charles has lots of illegitimate children. So they're saying, well, why don't we have this guy as a Protestant? He could be king instead of James. Yeah. So in 1679 to 81, Parliament put forward three times a bill to exclude James, Duke of York, from the throne, from being able to inherit. They're saying he cannot yeah. be next because he's Catholic. Charles, each time, stands by his brother, refuses it, quickly dissolves Parliament every time they do it. Right, so he just he's doing his dad's... And Cromwell, as soon as they cause yeah. problems, he's like, right, go home then. Yeah. But, of course, this is really bringing serious tension in the country yeah. again. We're sort of almost getting back to 1641 and that sense of building to a yeah. chaotic I've, climate. Because before the Civil War, it kept getting <clears throat> dismissed and then recalled dismissed. Exactly. Right, yeah. It's the start of political parties. So we have the Tories, who are supporting James, they're anti-exclusion. Um, the word comes from Middle Irish for outlaw. Oh, right. And we have the Whigs, from a Scottish Whigamore, which refers to Scottish cattle drivers who wanted to exclude James. And th this, so the parties, um, <coughs> st the genesis of them was the fact that they were so opposed to... So opposed, James. so we have a lot of sort of pamphlet warfare. Right. So that's why, <clears throat> that's why we've got these sort of Irish words for outlaw, Scottish, they're derogatory terms, that's how they come as origins. Yeah. So there's pamphlets saying, oh, those Whigs that are trying to get rid of our rightful ruler, and then the people saying, oh, the Tories who believe in divine yeah. right of kings and all this evil. So yeah. there's a real conflict in the country and in pamphlets, right. which is starting to, not formal parties, but the words and terminology has now started to take place. And there's genuine tension. Saft reincites hysteria about Catholicism, about threats of Charles having a standing army and about what he's going to do with it, again, very much like Charles I mm. all those years ago. 
Tories urge Charles to divorce his wife so that he can have a legitimate heir and solve the whole problem. Indeed, Charles refuses. However, Charles sees it out. The Whigs and Shaftesbury rather overplay their hand with incredibly violent rhetoric. So it literally becomes the language of the Civil War. So Shaftesbury tells people to imagine standing atop London Monument, looking out to their new city, but then seeing it on fire once more with the burnings of Protestants, just like under Bloody Mary. Wow, yeah, that is quite... So people think he's maybe gone a little bit too far with Mm. the language. So they're saying, well, look, we don't want another civil war. Mm. And 1681, Charles calls another parliament, and he's secure knowing that actually the tide of opinion is now on his side. Um, He's got money and potential military support from Louis XIV, so he doesn't need parliament to give him money anymore. He can do fine by himself. And he knows he's got the support of the church. So he says to them, I have law and reason and all right-thinking men on my side. I have the church and nothing will ever separate us. But he doesn't bring back Catholicism like the French want him to. He doesn't bring back Catholicism, no. but he's, because he's pro, he's, he's still getting, he's yeah. getting the money. And then there's a bit of a reaction, Tory reaction against the Whigs. Um, there's sort of things against them in charters and town corporations. Whigs, some of the radical ones get a little bit uh, agitated by this and think of drastic measures. So in 1683, we have the Rye House plot where um, some Whigs hatch this half thought plan to execute well to assassinate Charles and his brother right doesn't go anywhere but it is found out and the whole sort of Whig movement is tainted by association and there's a really strong uh, backlash against this one lord commits suicide in the Tower of London two are executed and others including Shaftesbury die in exile yeah, it's all about stability this reign, isn't it? You've got to just keep the boat steady. So the final years, there's an economic boom. He's got pension from Louis Fourteenth. Doesn't have to call any more parliaments. Oh, of course, yeah. So he's just going on quite happily. It's all much more stable. Oh, brilliant. However, at 1685, he suffers an unexpected stroke. Or convulsions from a kidney disease. We're not quite sure which, mm. but nevertheless. And, and he was dying. Couldn't be saved, despite the best Leeches in town. efforts of the doctors. Well, you know, red-hot pokers and all sorts of mm. weird things. He apologised um, to those around his bedside for being such an unconscionable time of dying. <laughs> um, asked to be British, isn't it? <laughs> Very sorry about all this. Asked to be propped up in bed to uh, see Dawn for one last time. Who's Dawn? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. Have some heart. <laughs> oh, God. I can't be with that. Oh, Received a last rites... Yeah. I.e. he converted oh, cat, cat, oh, Catholicism God. on his deathbed. Right. And died at the age of 55. But that is it. That is uh, the reign of Charles II. Okay, let's do it. Let's review him. Battleliness. So, battleliness. Um, not perhaps his strongest suit. No. In the Civil War, Edge Hill, um, he was said to have shown bravery. Apparently he had to be restrained from rushing towards uh, an enemy who was brandishing a pistol. Uh, an enemy was coming towards him, so Charles brandishing a pistol, shouting defiantly. You mm. know, when he's about 12 or something. <laughs> and at the Battle of Worcester, he showed leadership qualities, getting that army together, inspired them. Apparently two horses killed under him, so, you know, he was in danger. What, so he, he got killed, his horse that he was riding got killed, mm. got off and it happened again? Yeah. Wow. Happens quite a bit on... Poor old horses, they yeah. do, obviously. Yeah. Take some. Dutch Wars, you know, there was some good come out of it. Battle of Lowestoft, 1665, the fleet commanded in person by his brother James, uh, defeated the Dutch, blew mm. up the flagship. And, of course, we get uh, New Amsterdam, which becomes New York. Yeah. On the Hudson Bay as well, territory. So, you know, there's some... So, there's one for our American friends, that's a little yeah. tick, yeah. However, it's largely not very impressive, I'm afraid, for Charles and Battliness. He never actually fights in the English Civil War, you know, when it's Charles mm. I and Cromwell. And at Worcester, he is decisively and convincingly defeated by Cromwell. Yeah, Cromwell had him, had him bossed there. Completely defeated. He's forced to flee. England doesn't rise up in support of him. <clears throat> you know, no. he's a fugitive. And he doesn't reclaim the throne by battle. It's through invitation. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's not this big, dramatic, you know, sword held a lot no. of people cheering him as he comes in and lops off Cromwell's head. And even when they cheer him, he's going, why are they doing this to me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. cheering last yeah. year. So, you know, that's... 
It's not so good. great. The Dutch wars were largely humiliating for the English. Twice. Uh, there was an attempted seizure of the Dutch East Indies fleet, which completely failed. But then the Medway, uh, De Reuter, the Dutch commander, sailed all the way up um, Medway, where the English fleet was anchored and largely unguarded, captured and towed away um, the flagship, which had brought Charles back to England, yeah. and burnt, scattered and beached the rest of them. Wow. That was pretty that humiliating. humiliating. So there was a saying at the time, the bishops get all, the courtiers spend all, the citizens pay for all, the king neglects all, and the Dutch take all. Mm. Mm, yeah, it's not good, Graham. Not good at all. And of course, this period is dominated by the French and Louis Fourteenth. He's the dominant figure of the age. His, with his officials, works very hard to make France a superpower of industry and military. He's got a real iron will, which is the thing you have to respect and what you want from a king. Apparently he gave a public audience immediately after an operation to treat an anal, anal fistula. I'm sorry? Not to that. The audience wasn't for that. No, so he had an operation to sort out his anal fistula and then... And then went... Okay. And of course this is before Still. we have anaesthetics. Yeah. God, but maybe it's just take his mind off it. <laughs> <laughs> Charles is impressed by the majesty of Louis's court, although apparently he mocked the formality, saying that he cannot piss, but someone must hold the pot for him. <laughs> but France are dominant. Charles makes treaties in which he relies upon Louis for support in England, and Louis has oppositional MPs in his pay, so he can just you know get them really? to cause trouble whenever he needs Charles to do what he just wants him to do. Completely blatant spies. Yeah, well, I mean... Just completely in his pay. Yeah, so That's Charles is almost a sort of a client king. Yeah. Almost, so it's not a powerful, dominant European figure. He's... He's owned. He's owned by Louis Fourteenth. That's And terrible. defeated by the Dutch. Yeah. Who he was... Be, who was fi- he was fighting with the person who was owning him with. Yes. That's mad situation. So we haven't really got anything very impressive there at all. I mean... He's not in the battles that are won. He's there waving his pistol as a kid. Yeah. And he managed to successfully get back on a horse twice. And then run away. <laughs> yeah. It's not good, Charlie. I don't think I'd give him anything for battliness. I'll give him one for spirit. Spirit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> his pistol, he, he meant well, but just... So for spirit and brandishing his pistol, mm. Charles gets one for battliness, but that is not a good start. No, especially since he's against 19.5. Yes. Scandal. This, I think, will be more up Charles's alley. Oh, yes. Charles is a scandalous man. Yeah. It's a hedonistic court, as we said. Uh, the man John Wilmot had a rhyme saying, Restless he rolls from whore to whore, a merry monarch, scandalous and poor. <laughs> Which is a very good quote yeah. to uh, sum up. Yeah, it's brilliant. <laughs> so the court has a reputation for being, being debauched, late night partying, women, women abounding, noble women, common women actresses. Not a lot of work going on. Oh, what was the actress's name? I tried to remember before and got uh, it completely wrong. There are numerous, but Nell Gwynn Nell is the Gwynn, famous one. And um, and one of the who I've got to mention this guy, um, Duke of Buckingham, who is the son of you remember the favourite of James the First and Charles the First, mm, who yeah. was assassinated. His son grows up with Charles II, so we have another Buckingham that's causing really? lots of problems. Taught with Charles by Thomas Hobbes, famous thinker who wrote Leviathan, and apparently Buckingham masturbated during geometry lessons. Oh, right. Okay, good. As you do. Um, he was, you know, one of the witty, drinking, womanising party-goers who apparently fatally wounded the Earl of Shrewsbury in a duel after having an affair with his wife. This is more like it. <laughs> we haven't seen anything like this for ages. Brilliant. Proper right. fun scandal. Well, of course... Charles has a bevy of mistresses. Mm. It's it's um, sort of almost like a harem. <laughs> so many going on. Lots of potentials before he became king. We don't necessarily know about his first main love was Lucy Walter, who was the mother of his illegitimate son James, Duke of Monmouth. Yeah, goes on to cause much problems, but some very famous ones. So Barbara Villiers um, was sort of main one for much of the period. A squire's wife, chief mistress a lot of the time, a pinup of the period. There are lots of portraits done of her, but also engravings that were made that ordinary people could buy. Apparently, Pepys bought three engravings really? of <laughs> Barbara Villiers. So he's setting up Playboy. Yeah, a bit of an unpleasant woman, though, as well. He had quite an influential role at court. Um, and they're not faithful to each other, so Charles apparently wants caught her in bed with another man. And he said to that man, you are a rascal, but you do it for your bread. <laughs> <laughs> this is fantastic. 
We have others. Some are noble women and some are actresses. So Elizabeth Killigrew, Catherine Pegg, Louise de Kerouai, who is a French Catholic, which again mm. is and probably a spy of Louis Fourteenth mm. again. Moll Davis, who is an actress, but the most famous, as she said, Nell Gwynn. Mm. Um, she was a poor London girl, allegedly grew up in a brothel, um, sold oranges in theatres and then became an actress. And from about uh, 1668, and when she was about 17, she was uh, a mistress of Charles II. And uh, she has a cheerful, saucy personality, didn't have any airs, made Charles laugh, which he liked. And she called him Charles III uh, because he was her third Charles. That's that's so... That's like something out of Oh, that's brilliant. (laughs) And in 1681, her carriage was surrounded by a hostile (laughs) crowd who thought that she was the French Catholic mistress. So she popped her head out of the window and said, Pray good people be silent. I am the Protestant whore. It's just... It's brilliantly divorced. They don't even care. And Charles' last words said to have been, Let not poor Nelly starve to his brother. Sweet. Hmm. And he has numerous illegitimate children. I... don't, we don't always do quotes, but I think you couldn't possibly improve on this. It's David Starkey. The only rigid thing about Charles II was his male member. He fathered at least 14 children by nine different mothers and more or less single-handedly repopulated the depleted ranks of the English nobility. Wow. So, apparently, when he was hailed by someone as the father of his people, Charles laughed and said that he certainly had fathered a great <laughs> number of them. <laughs> Nicknamed Old Rowley after one of the stallions in the royal stud. I mean, how you can't improve on this. This is superb. <laughs> and at the time, and this is going to seem a little odd, he was seen particularly scandal for his effeminacy. Not in the sense of being camp no. or homosexual, but because, as Earl of Rochester said, Charles's scepter and his prick are of a length, but she who plays with one may sway the other. See, so he was seen as being dominated by his women. He didn't just have his wicked way with them and then, like, right, off to business. Yeah. How you go, next one in. He actually yeah. enjoys... Well, you may have done that. He, <laughs> he enjoys the company of women. I see. He right, thinks okay, they're yeah. actually worth talking to and spending his time with right. rather than just his bedroom antics. So even when serious business is to be discussed, he doesn't clap his hands and the women go out. He, they just stay there and join yeah. in. He and they can't understand like, this. madness. They say he thinks they've got something... Can't understand it at all. So he's quite passive. He's not really a seducer of women. He's quite... He's not very proactive. He just mm. sort of... Come here. Let's it come to him. And he quite enjoys uh, dominant women, so he probably quite enjoyed playing the role of the servant, remember Jane Lane. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's seen by many as being under the thumb of his women, even Louis XIV, apparently, sort of well, he, a bit mockingly about He <laughs> was under the thumb of Louis XIV. <laughs> but, you know, arguably it's a more civilised and sympathetic view of women than many of his peers, isn't it? Certainly, you know, yeah. he takes them on a certain level. But that's quite good fun. Oh, I th- good I mean, fun scandal. That's what we want. That's well done, Charles. Well done. That's all I can say. I mean, really big. This is my probably my favourite category, <laughs> just because of all the stories that come out, and you really pulled it back there. I mean, we gave Cromwell ten each for killing the king, which is and the island. Oh, and Ireland, yes, lest we forget. Um, not much sex going on. No, I mean, I suppose Charles, it's a, it's a lot of sex and good fun, but it's not anything that really. Rocks no, society no, no, no. in that sense. It's daily. It's Daily Mail, but it's not. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. Going to cause a crisis. We haven't. We haven't remembered these through the ages like we have the killing of a king yeah. or Beckett. Yes. But it's lovely to find out about. This. Yes. So, but it is all. I mean, he is almost made for this category. <laughs> yes. But there's no. Yeah, there's no murder. No. He's having a lot of sex, but not with nuns. Nope. Uh, what else have, has previously been good on Scandal? Um, well, I mean, I mean, that's it, really. Yeah, it really doesn't kill his wife. Sex, drugs, and not yet rock and roll. Mm. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, it's going to be above five. I'm going, oh, definitely. I'm going, I'm going, yeah. I want to go eight, because there's no murder, mm. but... And I want it to be a big score, because he's done some hard work there, and he should be yes, awarded. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so eight. As well. yeah. So that's 16 for Scandal. Back on track for Charles II. Well done. Subjectivity. Well, there's a lot of things to consider here, some good, mm-hmm. some bad. Um, in terms of his personality, which I think is an important thing, in terms of his actions... You know, he's he's the merry monarch yeah. of legend. He's affable, without graces, a witty, sense of humour... Good fun. Mm. Some contemporaries, John Evelyn, uh, said he was a prince of many virtues and many great imperfections, debonair, easy of access, not bloody or cruel. 
Yeah, that's true. It's good yeah. qualities. Tuke said, easiness of access, his patience and attention, and the gentleness, both in the tune and style of his speech. And he's a witty man. So remember John Wilmot, who said about the whore to whore? Yeah, yeah. Um, he said, we have a, a pretty witty king, and whose word no man relies upon. He never said a foolish thing, and never did a wise one. And as soon as that was put to Charles, he quipped straight back. He said, that's true, for my words are my own, but my actions are those of my minister's. Yeah. I really like him. He's a really fun. He's just a decent bloke. He enjoys walking, especially around St James's Park, tennis, fishing, horse racing, swimming, and as if he hadn't done enough to appeal to you, he's the first monarch to have his own yacht. Oh, there we go. Which is nicknamed the Royal Escape after his uh, yeah. Oh, cool. Another great example is then in, um, in 1671. There's <clears throat> an Irish man, Colonel Blood who tried to steal the crown jewels with some accomplices, was caught in the act, trying mm. to steal it, and then ran off, but they got arrested. Any other reign, you presume, hang, drawn, quartered, all sorts yeah, of things. Yeah. Man, what Henry VIII would have done. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When Charles hears about this, he roars with laughter, <laughs> <laughs> meets Colonel Blood, shakes his hand, and gives him the post of bodyguard and the salary of £500 for life. No way. Because he thought it was such a hoot. He does. He just he thinks life is so much fun, doesn't <laughs> yeah. he? He's dressing up. Oh, this guy's brilliant. Oh. I'm going to surprise you with this one. He's a good husband. Well. Oh, yeah. Well. <laughs> it doesn't start very well. Um, Catherine apparently, when they first met, had her hair in Portuguese style, where they had long projected ringlets, to which Charles responded, They've brought me a bat! <laughs> yeah. Okay. On, a, on the wedding night, Catherine experienced an unexpected period, um, so there was no uh, bedding, public bedding ceremony. Yeah. And Charles Panley, who had ridden all night to get there and had been with his mistress Barbara Villiers the night before, said, It was happy for the honour of the nation that I was not put to the consummation of the marriage last night. Matters would have gone very sleepily. <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear. <laughs> However, um, they do grow to have some affection. Catherine fell very seriously ill at one stage and Charles finally sat with her at her bedside for hours, often in tears and then there's a point where she slipped into delirium where um, she believed herself to be pregnant and presented Charles with what she thought was a son whom she was apologising for being so ugly because of course she hadn't been able Mm. to have a son and then in a more lucid moment she urged him to remarry with someone more pleasing than her after she died. So he was really profoundly affected by this. So when the Tories called for him to divorce Catherine because she was barren and, you know, he needed an heir, he refused. He said, she is a weak woman and has some disagreeable humours, but considering my faultiness towards her, I think it a horrid thing to abandon her. I mean, the thing is, I know he's going around whoring that very (laughs) evening, (laughs) but I just think, oh, what a lovely bloke. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm conflicted. Some uh, interesting trivia. Catherine of Braganza credited with introducing the custom of tea drinking to England. I mean, this is... Because it's very popular among Portuguese nobility, and maybe even forks as well. But who doesn't love a lovely tea? Exactly. Mm, This is really good. It's good cultural stuff as well. The restoration. We have theatres reopening after the Puritan ban. And this is the first time that women have been allowed on stage. Mm. First time ever. Christmas is restored, of course. Points there. In literature, John Dryden, famous poet. He's a poet laureate. Milton writes Paradise Lost, mm-hmm. although it's more a lament than a celebration of the New Age, so I don't know how much credit we give Charles, but it happens to occur yep. with his reign. We have Restoration Comedies, notorious for their sexual explicitness. Of course. Quality encouraged by Charles. Um, audience, a mix of aristocrats, middle class and servants, and you know, all sorts of people loving it. The Royal Society gets its charter from Charles in this period. Oh, really? So it's an organisation which promotes research, meets to discuss theories, witness experiments. Yeah. Incredibly important in the development of science. Still with us. Still with us, of course. Charles is interested in science, so he conferred a royal charter. Apparently he was very amused by their efforts to weigh air at one stage. <laughs> would, that would look funny. <laughs> would look funny. <laughs> Members in that period included Christopher Wren, Robert Hooke, Sir Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, Edmund Halley. Mm. Incredible period. Mm, yeah. The Royal Observatory is built as well with Charles's um, permission, and also the first astronomer royal, which is a man John Flamsteed, right. and uh, he founds the Royal Hospital in Chelsea for uh, old soldiers. Well, I never knew that all these great British institutions are actually funded by French money. <laughs> well, yes, that's <laughs> it's just quite ultimately strange, yeah. that is true. And as we said, Charles very pro-religious toleration, yeah. which is a nice thing to see. Um, in face of a strongly Anglican Parliament. Declaration of Breda in 1660 made a promise to the liberty to tender consciences. 
And he said that he should be glad that those distinctions between his subjects might be removed and that whilst they were all equally good subjects, they might equally enjoy his protection. Mm. So he's saying, as long yeah. as you're loyal to me, I don't care what you think. It's good. That's a good egg thing to say. And he does attempt, we said, that declaration of indulgence to use his prerogative to suspend the Clarendon Code. Quakers, he's um, very um, pleasant towards them, except they have a peaceful disposition, allows them to keep their hat on indoors and let, uh, let them call him thou. And he intervened at one stage to free 700 of them from jail. Good, good bloke. And, you know, he's just very laid back, attitude mm. of the whole thing. Apparently he found sermons rather soporific. And um, a preacher, um, when delivering a sermon to him and other nobles, um, complained to Lord Lauderdale, who was snoring. And he said, My lord, I'm sorry to interrupt your repose, but I must beg that you will not snore quite so loud, lest you should awaken his majesty. <laughs> this is brilliant. So he's there, he's there snoring, and wakes up and says, Ah! And goes <laughs> off drinking and whoring. This is brilliant. <laughs> and the Great Fire of London, not particularly good um, for the citizens, but Charles comes out of it rather well. The mayor of the time, a man called Bloodworth, apparently showed very little interest when it was first reported, and he said dismissively that a woman might piss it out. Right, he didn't get it, did he? Matters got rather out of control, and he was out of his depth, so Charles and James take control of the situation and order, you know, what's going to happen, how it's going to be dealt with. He personally starts ordering things around? Yeah, and they actually go down on the scene, you know, so the black with soot and everything. James directs the firefighting, Charles encourages the soldiers, creating the fire block. Then at Moorfields... Uh, in London, masses of dispossessed people, of course, all their houses yeah. burnt down. They gather in these camps. So Charles goes there in person, orders distribution of bread, as well as opening public buildings so they can store their possessions. And he also tries to publicly um, dispel the rumours about uh, it being a Catholic plot. What a good egg. That's brilliant. Yeah. And ultimately, of course, the restoration is successful. He weathers the storm, stands by his brother, and we remember the context. He's coming in from his father was executed. Mm-hmm. 20 years ago not even 20 years ago yeah, yeah. just over 10 years ago so that's the context in which he takes the throne and he stands by his ground he's very strong so he says to Shaftesbury in the midst of the exclusion crisis my lord let there be no self-delusion I am none of those that grow more timorous with age rather I grow more resolute the nearer I am to the grave I intend to take a greater care of my own preservation and that of my people mm. so he wins ultimately yeah. he stands his ground and he, by the end he dies in bed king of England yeah, good. On, well done, Charles. Yeah, too. yeah. But what what have we got against him? As much as he's all for the whole religious toleration thing, he doesn't actually get his own way there. Largely a failure. The Anglican drive overturns all of his attempts for toleration, and the lasting legacy really are the Test Acts, and um, whereby Catholics aren't allowed to hold public office. Quakers suffer lots of persecution despite Charles's best efforts. In Ireland very strongly welcomes his restoration. They've been loyal to Charles and they expected rewards for this, but he struggles to meet the competing interests of the people who have got the land already mm. and the Catholics that want their land back. Yeah. Remember, they've gone down to 6% yeah. land ownership. 1660, Court of Claims here, 800 cases, 566 of which give decrees to Catholics, but there's still loads and loads that haven't been able to have their case heard and many that struggle still to get the land. 1665, they try again an act of explanation which attempts to resolve ongoing issues. Catholic land ownership restored to about 20%. So, you know, it's, it's all trying. right. It's trying, yeah. but it's, yeah. the expectations aren't quite met. But it's much worse in Scotland. There's very significant persecution of Presbyterians under Lord Lauderdale. Um, they're treated as rebels. They are ultimately incited into becoming rebels, and they really have the worst of it. He was the one... He got in with those to stop. He did. He doesn't like them, though. Yeah, right. It's not a religion for gentlemen, he said, apparently. <laughs> so, religious toleration, as nice as it is that he had aims in that regard, he doesn't really achieve it no. in any way. Parliamentary conflict, like Charles I, like Cromwell, we're seeing dissolution of Parliament, escalating conflict, getting close to civil war. He wins the battle, but 1685, the problem hasn't really gone away. No, he's debated. His biggest fault, I'd say. So, is he lucky that he just dies yeah, at a good point? And, you know, he hadn't called Parliament for four years because he had the. Pension. Were we seeing another personal monarchy like with Charles I? Was he going to recall Parliament? Was it slipping into another sort of monarchic yeah, dictatorship? Yeah. Well, I mean, he died. So, so we never know. Yeah. yeah. Like Edward IV, he's very lazy. Yeah. And he declares himself unwilling to go on his travels again. And unwilling really to have to get up and do anything that isn't particularly fun. Mm-hmm. Unless he really has to. 
Clarendon um, despaired a little bit. He said, when anything is to be done by the king's own hand, we must sometimes be content to wait. Hebring brought very unwillingly to the work, which vexes me exceedingly. He hath more judgment and understanding by many degrees than many who pretend it, and that is the only thing that breaks my heart, that he makes no more use of it. So he's a capable and intelligent king, but he can't really be bothered. So it's only when there's a crisis, like the Great Fire of London, like the exclusion crisis, when his back's to the wall, he, really, he applies himself. And he really comes up trumps. But most, well, excuse me, maybe not, but... But, but he gets his way. Yeah. But most of the time he doesn't apply himself to a task. He doesn't actually do anything. He does just sort of just sit back and not really get things done. That's true. And I think maybe that's why um, he loses out in other categories. Mm. Like battliness, he, you know, sort of waves his gun around. He was only 12. But <laughs> this, um, if you're a subject mm. uh, and you knew that the fellow at the top was didn't really care much for religion because he kept chopping and changing, although it might put you on edge. But it's still, the, the religion thing, it's still, persecution is still happening. The fact that Charles is mm. pro-toleration, it's still happening. It is still happening. But he's, he, you know that he's trying. Mm. But there are a lot of people, of course, fear that, you know, he's Catholic and he's going to bring in the French and they're going to have another civil war. Yeah. So yeah. There's, there's almost times where he could intervene more earlier to prevent the crisis, but he kind of just sits back and it's only really when it gets really bad that he's like, oh, well, right, I'll sort it out. I've probably said this before, I can't remember, but I'm really struggling here because I just like his personality so much. Yeah, I think with Edward IV, maybe saying, well, you know, I'm lazy, so... Yeah, well, exactly, I think I I like this guy. (laughs) Um, He's also quite duplicitous, again, like his father, Charles I. He can't be trusted to hold to his word or steer a straight course. And, of course, the Treaty of Dover... It's always with religion, this, isn't it? 1670, so where he's got that secret treaty where he's technically saying, I'm going to restore England to the mm. Catholicism, might need some French troops to help me out. Probably deceiving Louis XIV to an extent as well, so he's taking the money, but probably mm. doesn't mean to go through with it. But, you know, he's a cynical and devious man behind the merry mask. Yeah. He never really lets anyone in and gets close, so, you know, it's, there is a calculation going on. Yeah. I, um, but, I mean, and that duplicitous nature is always with this religious issue... For which he doesn't really care for. I know that it mm. might make you nervous if you're a man on the street because mm. you're falling asleep in church and stuff like that. Mm. And he's just trying to... Um, I think he's always uh, being this, being duplicitous mm. to try and get the best end result, which mm. doesn't always work. Yeah. But it has. It did then secure England's... You said in the final reign, you know, we had this... Uh, Pension, yeah, it was secure and everything was ticking over. And the succession, although it, we'll see next time, it doesn't go very well mm. after a short time. But there is, it is a accepted succession. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, how are we going to score him for subjectivity? Again, I'm, I'm, I'm being really biased here, just because I really <laughs> like, like him. I, I think he's if, probably the, like one of the best chaps. Yeah, but if you, I think if you compare it to the rain beforehand, rain technical. Yeah. Um, and you hadn't been to the theatre. And celebrated Christmas. Hadn't celebrated Christmas. Um, it was all just a bit duh. Um, you were a female actress, so you couldn't act. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you'd never drunk tea. <laughs> so I think on reflection, <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> I'm, I'm going above five, certainly. And I'm probably going seven. I'm going to give him a six. Similarly, I think it is good, and it is <clears throat> an improvement on the previous reign. It is all good fun, but I think there's, it's easy to be romantic about it and think what's fun for us. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But there would have been a lot of difficult times, and yeah. a lot of people still suffered, and, there's an, and Charles could have done more yeah. with what he had. So, I mean, I'm just blinded by this, because yeah. it's so much fun. But yeah, you're, you're right, but I, mm. oh yeah, okay. Seven, I'll stick with seven. So that's a 13 for subjectivity. Longevity. He rules from 1660 to 1685, which is 24.75 years, which gives him a score of 7.79. Dynasty, not the programme. He has zero legitimate children, of course, which gives him a dynasty score Mm. of zero. But an interesting little fact, because he has all those illegitimate children who become dukes and duchess and whatnot, Diana was descended from, I think, a couple of those illegitimate. Really? So when William becomes king, he will be the first monarch to be directly descended from Charles II. That is a great Rex, Rex fact. Rex fact of fact. Wow. That's brilliant. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> so that gives Charles a total score of 37.79, which isn't particularly 
no. strong, but he had, he had a couple of bad battliness and dynasty. Mm. He was too so busy well. doing other things. Indeed. Anyway, that is it for him, but we now have to consider whether or not he has that lasting legacy, that great achievement, that star quality, which we call... Rex Factor! Oh, Graham, it's so difficult. We've got, we've got pros and cons here, yeah, definitely. this is a really tough one for me. Um, I think... Mm. We'll go through, we'll go through yeah. the, the legend aspect, but I think throughout all of what you're going to say, I've got to consider it in the, <laughs> in the period. Mm. So I'm imagining him with what I thought was a big wig... You know, well, he still does have a big periwig on. And uh, uh, Nell Gwynn, the the Monument of London, all these grand buildings being rebuilt, and he's strutting around being exactly the kind of king I imagine for that period. <laughs> yes. Flamboyant, yeah. just, yeah, things are going all right, and he's mm. expressing that. Yeah. But so, go on. So we've got that legendary escape from Worcester, of course, which is great fun. Mm-hmm. We've got the restoration, making it last, lasting out the exclusion mm-hmm. crisis. And we've got, like you've been saying there, basically the star quality, just great, fun, yeah. accessible, humorous, witty monarch. Yeah. yeah, It's good, good fun. Yes. Definite star quality. But? Militarily, as we saw, it was pretty much a no-show. Yeah. Laziness. You know, you don't mind it so much, but you know, he doesn't really have a lot of great achievements that he yeah. leaves behind. He just makes sure he capitalises when he has luck. Yeah. Yeah. So he's basically quite happy. He's had a hard time off in exile and he's just, right, I'm king now. Yeah. I'm just going to enjoy it. Yeah. Political tensions and unresolved crises, which yeah. isn't a great legacy to leave behind. But also, we've had uh, people who've won the Rex Factor who have done badly and who haven't necessarily shone in all of the um, different categories before. Mm. It's, it's, it's separate from those. That's how yeah. we score him. And this is whether he has that certain something. And... And I think maybe, because we are going to have to start looking at kings in a different way. They're no longer medieval. Battliness might start to feature less, and because he's been restored, he wants more order. So maybe it's a good thing there's less of it. Mm. But I think you touched on it there. There, Maybe there's a difference between his... To me, he's a legend, definitely. (laughs) He's got the star quality. Mm. But is he a Rex Factor legend? That's the decision that we have to come to. I suppose one thing to think about is that he doesn't descend into civil war in yeah. the way they did under Charles the First, and he does keep it established and going. And it's it is an improvement, and it is better than what had happened under Charles and Cromwell. It's better than what comes later yeah. under his brother. Certainly better than his father. And that's the thing, I suppose. We can, we say you know he doesn't actually do very much, but actually, as we said earlier, it is an achievement to die peacefully in bed as King of England, yeah. given what had happened in the previous yeah, twenty years. Certainly. I'd love to give it to him. Mm. I think for his time, yeah. he's great. And he has failings in that he's no, there's no real dynasty there, um, and no battliness, but I think, I think that's good in this instance, <laughs> that he's not, he hasn't got yeah. that civil war. He doesn't have to prove himself on the battlefield. Yeah. And in all other ways, he's great. I mean, he's bringing back all this culture. Mm. He's... he's Okay, England, or Britain rather, isn't on the world stage and it's under the pay of the French, but with that money he's building these great institutions yeah. that are still with us. I'd love to give it to him. I know you've got to agree. Yeah. But, um... What's your I, word? Yes I'm going no? yes. I was really torn with this one. It's one when I first started reading, I thought, oh, yeah, he's definitely going to get it. Mm. And then when I started looking at the politics rather than just the actresses, yeah. I started thinking, oh, I don't know, does he, does he deserve it? And I think ultimately, that the fact that he does survive the crisis, the fact he does last it, shows that actually when he needs to do something, he does do it. Yeah. And the important thing is he, he restores the monarchy. It could so easily, if that had gone badly, mm. then it could have descended into another civil war, could have been back to republicanism. Yeah. It was a really difficult period to come into that and to have to restore the monarchy. It was a massive moment. It's only now that we can say, oh, well, he was funny, just dollied around, but actually it could have gone another way. The restoration is successful, and we have to give him credit for that. And he's great fun. And he's a star quality, so I'm also going to say Yay! yes to Charles I. Brilliant. Well done. He has the Rex Factor. He joins yes. Elizabeth I and all the others that came before. What are people going to say? If what we didn't give it to Cromwell. We didn't give it to Cromwell, who <laughs> was the most it. formidable military commander ever yeah. and killed the king. Yeah, and we give it to Charles II. Who, but arguably, he, he uh, overcame all of Cromwell's... Uh, well, crucially, of course, Cromwell 
got rid of and then refused the monarchy. Charles II, he didn't just bring back partying, he brought back the crown jewels. There we go. That's it for Charles II, so... Thank you. Thanks for listening. Yeah, next time we will do his brother, James II. See you next time. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 